When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What do you do when life doesn't go according to plan? That moment you lose a job, or a loved one, or even a piece of yourself. I'm Brooke Shields, and this is Now What? A podcast about pivotal moments as told by people who lived them. Each week, I sit down with a guest to talk about the times they were knocked off course and what they did to move forward. Some stories are funny. Others are gut-wrenching. But all are unapologetically human and remind us that every success and every setback is accompanied by a choice. And that choice answers one question. Now what? How did you develop your comedy? How did you develop a set? I did the open mic night, and I told stories about my family. Because at the beginning, I did Jerry Seinfeld jokes, seriously. Like, I had seen him on Merv Griffin, and I went to the comedy club, and I did as many as I could, not only with his jokes that he had written, which I didn't realize you had to write your own jokes, because I thought, Streisand doesn't write her own songs. Why do I have to write my own jokes? (laughs) So I got up on stage, and I went, you know, sometimes... Your car stalls. You open up the hood. What are you looking for? A big on-off switch? On-off? I not only took his jokes, I took his cadence. I took everything about Did you ever tell him that? He knows because I... Look, other comics came over to me and said, where'd you get those jokes, Rosie? And I said, "Uh, Johnny Seinman, he was on Merv Griffin yesterday. They said, you can't do that. I said, I certainly can. He didn't write those jokes. They go, yes, he did. And I was like, I'm fucked if I have to write my own jokes. So the other comic said to me, try just telling stories about your family. The jokes will come. And that's what I did. My guest today is the incredible Rosie O'Donnell. Rosie is an Emmy Award-winning talk show host, comedian, actor, podcaster, and most importantly, a wonderful friend and mother. 
We met years ago, and I've loved watching her transformation from a stand-up comic to a fixture in pop culture, an important and occasionally controversial social and political commentator and an activist whose work with marginalized communities is too extensive to list here. Rosie is honest, vulnerable, and committed to personal growth. As always, I was just blown away by her candor and her willingness to share so much of herself with all of us. So here is Rosie O'Donnell. Rosie O'Donnell, welcome to Now What? I'm so excited, A, that you've asked me to do your podcast, and I'm very, very happy about that. So thank you. It was my pleasure. So we've kind of warmed up a little bit. Um, so thank you so much for joining my podcast, which is called Now What? Now What? What a great title. It is a great title, much like yours, Onward. What made you decide you wanted to do a podcast? Truthfully, it was uh, doing a, a series, an hour-long drama series last year that took so much time and energy and, and ended up being sort of disappointing artistically. And, you know, they fired the showrunner in between and the, the lead male didn't have a great time, wasn't happy about, you know, being in it. And it just was, I, I thought of all this time that I'm out of my house with my little 10-year-old daughter, it was too much time. It, it wasn't worth not being around her. So I really did think after that show finished, what can I do to stay home and still be creatively inspired? And I had been asked to do a podcast years ago and I tried and guess what? I had no idea how to do it. <laughs> I would sit there by myself and I would try to just talk like, and it, it was like, this is not going to work. And you didn't interview people. You weren't interviewing people. You were just talking. I was talking. Yeah, that shows you a stupid way to do a podcast. I didn't have anyone to interview. I didn't have subject matters. I didn't have experts. I was, but I never, I never aired it. I recorded them and then I listened back to them and said, "Yeah, I don't want the, this deal. I'm sorry, I can't do it." You call this just a, a start of a third and big chapter, and I just love that. Yeah, third and final chapter. Truthfully, we have one to thirty, and then we got thirty to sixty. And then we got 60 on. And how long you go on is anyone's guess. But this is the third and final chapter of a three-chapter book. <laughs> I like that. I don't know if I'm comfortable yet saying final chapter, because I feel mm. like there's going to be a few pivots in the in this chapter, or that this is yes, the there can be a lot of pivots. three many there chapters. Can, <laughs> yeah, yes, many chapters. Yeah, that's true. You, there's so many times I remember Nora Ephron saying to me, you know, I didn't start directing till I was 48 or, you know, I didn't start doing, you know, Georgia O'Keeffe never painted until, and she would always know people who started things later than most. And uh, I always hear her voice in my head whenever I think, oh, I'm too old for that. No, Grandma Moses learned to paint when she was a grandma. <laughs> <laughs> I love that though. That's a, it's, there is such a thing. I mean, my mom didn't want to be called grandma. Nobody wanted to be called grandma. And I just think, you know, I'm always like, hurry up and have kids, kids. Yes. <laughs> They're like, mom, that's yes. weird. My daughter has three. I'm a grandma now. Three babies? She has three babies under the age of four, and she's pregnant wow. with her fourth. Wow. One, two, three, five, no. five. One, boom, two, three, boom, four. Boom, 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 boom. Oh, my goodness. Uh, she's only 25, and, uh, you know, it's uh, she's had some challenges, and, you know, she's had a hard hand dealt to her, I think, uh, as a kid. She was... Um, 
born kind of compromised in some ways and and she struggled and we try to support her as as best we can and try to um you know not let addiction wreak havoc on on the whole family well that's a very 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 hard hard part of a story you know how do you think being parents though has has helped her and changed her you know, I, I, I'm not so sure that it, it has yet. You know, I, I think that stable footing and, and, and some continuity and, you know, I think that those things, when they become part of a routine for her and she's able to care for herself better, will enhance her love or her ability to parent. I mean, that's young to have that many children. My God, it is, yes. Has she, have you seen her mature? In some ways, you know, um, I'd like to say yes, but uh, it's it's a struggle. And you know, from uh, alcohol addiction, from your mother, when when addiction is in the equation, love doesn't matter. You can love someone to death and and want them so much to be well and to take care of themselves. But you know, I've been going to Al-Anon for a while now. Um, to sort of deal with a lot of the stuff that that comes with it, and and it's helped me tremendously. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you had access to that ever. Not when I was thirteen. When I was in my twenties, because I was continuing to carry the belief that I could change the situation. Right. I couldn't get it quite out of my head. And then when mm. was took took hearing other people's stories, and also going to AA too. Because it was important for me to not just be ACOA or AA or Al-Anon. Like, I wanted to know the different pieces that that are affected in that type of a, of a relationship. And it did take a lot of the onus off of me, which I will always be thankful for. The hardest part is loving someone. Yes. And not being able to fix it for them. No. You know? And, and never, ever being able to stop trying. Like, the you know, the... One woman said to me, listen, if your addict is angry at you, you're doing something right. Right. And that's a very hard part for me to do. You know, like when she has a need or she'll call and she needs something, it's so hard for me to stand in and not uh, not enable and not be so upset when she's upset at me, you know. And, but also this idea of tough love, you know, we, we never think really to associate the word tough with love, you know. Right. Did you learn that lesson through Al-Anon? I did, actually. I did with these wonderful, you know, there's a a, a group that I uh, am in that is mothers of, of addicts, and it's been so life-saving for me. And I imagine that losing your mom at such a young age brings, this brings up a lot, because one thing I always felt with my mother was the minute she drank, I lost her. You know, and I've I've had my younger daughter sort of give me that back to me and saying, it's annoying when you drink, mom. Mm. And that put up put a bell and I was just, but I can't repeat this. I cannot repeat this. And it's the thing I'm the most afraid of. To give um, listeners just a little bit of a background, can you talk a little bit about your childhood? Like what you were like as a little kid and where it all, where the Rosie that we love, where was she as a little kid? Well, we were a very Catholic, Irish Catholic household. My mom had five children right in a row. So right now in my family, it's 
63, 62, 61, 60, and 55. So that is the meaning of Irish twins. <laughs> You're not kidding. We had four in a row. And um, people would always think my sister and I were twins and that my two brothers, my two older brothers were twins, but we weren't. We were all single births. <laughs> and my mother was member of the parish council at Christ the King Church and was very connected to the church. And she also had just started working when she got sick. She started again because uh, my youngest brother was in kindergarten. So she started being a secretary at a school. And then shortly after that, she was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer. And by the time they opened her up, she had had pain in her back. And I remember just like, it was like around October, Halloween, she just started not feeling well. And then she was in the hospital. And when they opened her up, which I only found out later, it was everywhere. So they just told her to go home. Did she tell you all of this? Any of the, You didn't find any of this out until much later? Yes. She brought us into the hospital one at a time, my sister and I, and she gave me a little gift from the people who sell things to people in the hospital. You know, those little yeah. times, like there's, it was a little emerald fake ring, and she <laughs> gave that to me, and she told me to never forget. Um, she never said, I love you. She, we were not an I love you family. We were very... Um, closed off to emotions. You weren't encouraged to tell your feelings. Did you ever tell her you loved her? No, but I did tell my grandmother who lived with us, who was my mother's mother, who never could cook or never could drive anywhere. Or, or you know, she was just a homebound uh, woman who my mom took care of. And when she died, I thought, are they going to let her stay here? Like, I didn't understand what had happened. Were you all close? Your brother, siblings, even. Yes, we were. We were. Now there's two sides. There's three of us on one side and two on the other side. And it's been like that for years. And it's very sad. But if you don't have parents to say, knock it off, you're all coming to Thanksgiving. And for one day, you're going to get along. We didn't have that. We didn't have anyone keeping us together as children. And so now, you know, we're estranged. And, and it's one of the most painful things that's happened to me. In, in my adult life, you know, is to be estranged from, especially my sister, who I was so close to for so long. It's such a tremendous loss. I mean, I, I and we will get off loss. It's not, it doesn't, that does not def only define you. You've talked about the loss of your mother really sort of defining a lot of, of your life. Yes. Um, but it feels like there's this theme of loss, of being yes. estranged. How yes. do you, how have you found the strength to process it all and remain hopeful? You know, you know what it is? I, I don't really let people leave my life. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't let like Jackie and Jeannie, my two best friends are still my best friends since I was three. Mm -hmm. When I knocked on her door when I was three, when we just moved into Long Island suburbia, I said, do you have anyone here who's three? And the mother let me in, and she did, Jackie. And we are best friends like still it. to this day. <laughs> you were on a campaign. Hey, do you have any anybody here who's three? Yes. <laughs> Can you imagine letting your three-year-old child walk across the street and go up and knock on the houses that were just being built? Do you have anyone three? And, and they did. So it was a big bonus for me. And I keep people close, you know? I don't really... Um, have much loss outside of the huge ones, like my mother and my sister. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. 
Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. I feel like your sense of loyalty is just so pure. I've seen it towards me. I've seen it towards others over the course of many, many years. And I've seen you take the high road. I admire your work ethic and your resilience and feel like comedy is a part of that. Right, right. When did you first realize that you were funny? Well, you know, my mom, I think, suffered with depression. And when I would come home from school, if there was Barbara Streisand on, I knew it was going to be a good day. And I would do my Barbara Streisand impressions for my mother and for my Nana. When my mom was in a good mood, I would do, isn't this the height of nonchalant? I would do it all, you know, in my kitchen. So I knew I was funny and I knew that I was going to be an entertainer from the time I was in kindergarten. Other kids are bringing in Barbie dolls and I'm like going, I'd like to now do a number from the Cantor and Ebb musical. Like, and I would sing <laughs> for the, and I, I'm not a singer, honey. You know, I, I can fake it a little bit, but I'm not a singer. I'm not a Broadway singer. Like, let's be realistic, you know? I'm not either. You're not going to sing. I'm not going to stand up opposite, you know, Cheno and, and no, exactly. blow people away. Right. But I do have, and you paved the way, because if it hadn't been for you in Greece on Broadway, the whole idea of casting someone who is not traditionally a Broadway star performer right. was right. the beginning of my whole Broadway career. And mine too. <laughs> um, so you started, when did you see your first Broadway show? I saw my first Broadway show in 1973, Bette Midler, Clams on a Half Shell. Oh, God. Was that not the best? Revolutionary. <laughs> Revolutionary. And I remember thinking, I want to be that woman. I wanted to be her. Now, Streisand was not someone I ever saw on a stage so she was only in movies. She was far away in Hollywood. She lived in Malibu. I, I had no knowledge of all this. But Broadway 
where I could wait by the stage door and see a sweaty actor come out that just sang Pippin, I would be over the moon. Over the moon. How did you get into stand-up? Well, when I was in high school, there was a, a boy in my grade whose older brother was 15 years older than him, and he was a stand-up comic. And he came to see the show where you make fun of the teachers called Senior Follies. And I had written the Senior Follies show, and I performed in it. I was Gilda Radner, Rosanna, oh, Rosanna, God. Dana, right? You ever notice you got a little spit in your mouth that goes up and down and up and down? I would do that. <laughs> and so this kid says, I'd like you to meet my brother, Richie, and Richie Minavini, who was a, a you know well-known comic in in the touring circuit, said to me, I got a comedy club on uh, Huntington in Huntington. Will you come and try? I said, I don't want to be a stand-up comic. I want to be on Broadway. And he's like, well, why don't you just try it? So I went to this comedy club and I had all my friends there. It was a Saturday night and everybody was, you know, laughing and cracking up. And I didn't even have jokes. I would say things like, Mary Lynn is dating Billy and Bob doesn't know. And everybody would laugh because it was true. It was just like, it was like being in the lunchroom at my cafeteria. And so Richie comes up to me and says, why don't you come back tomorrow? Well, tomorrow was a school night Sunday. So none of my friends could go. So I went up and I died a horrible death. I had no Bombed, material. You didn't, know your, you didn't know your audience. <laughs> no, I didn't know anyone in the crowd. And I was standing up there going you know, like, you know, here's my impression of Pac-Man. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's what I, literally. <laughs> and I was 15, 16 years old, you know. So he said, keep coming back. And he let me go sit and watch. And I can't believe that my father let me, but I went every night to these comedy clubs and I would sit and watch. And then Shirley Hemphill, do you remember her from uh, What's do. Happening? Mm -hmm. Shirley Hemphill was the headliner at this Eastside Comedy Club. And she came in a day early when I was doing the hosting for the open mic night. And she said to Richie Minavini, she's opening for me this weekend. And he said, she's not ready. She said, she's opening for me or I'm not going on. And you're to pay your 50 bucks a show. And it was wow. my first paying gig. And how old were you? 16. Wow. So wait, then take me back a little bit. So then you go to college and then drop out? Yeah, I go to college and um, I had a 162 grade point average at Dickinson College, which was a D minus because I would not get up at 7 a.m. to take world history I would, you know, I had writing class. I loved a photography class. I loved, but all the ones that you were required to take, I like wouldn't show up. And I remember environmental science, I couldn't understand. And the final was, there are three lakes and they told you all about the sedimentary stuff underneath and which lake would be empty after this rainfall. And I run, oh, Lake B, because there were some terrorists with camels who were coming in to the country. And this was during the Iran-Contra thing, you know? And they stopped at this lake and the camels drank. And I wrote this elaborate story. And she, this woman, Professor Betty Barnes, called me into her office and she said, now, Miss O'Donnell, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pass you with this, but this is the funniest thing I've ever read. I think you should go into comedy. I'm going to give you a D minus. And she gave me a D minus instead of failing me. It was so nice of her. Then wow. I quit that, quit that college and I went to Boston University, a conservatory where you had to audition. And I auditioned and I went there to be an actress. And um, during the night, I would go to the comedy clubs and do open mic night. And one night they said to me, so-and-so is passed out drunk. 
will you go with Dennis Leary, who was unknown, uh, to this club in in the suburbs of um, Boston, and will you do 30 minutes? And I said, sure. Now, Brooke, I had never done 30 minutes, but it was $60 for one show. And I went with Dennis Leary and two other Boston comedians, and I got up there. I did about six minutes, and then I said goodnight, and then I'm sure I closed with whoa, 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 you know, because it was such a great Pac-Man joke. And um, on the way home, Dennis Leary said, listen, if you say you can do 30, you better have at least 20. And I said, well, thank you. I'm going to try to get 20. And uh, then I dropped out and I started getting gigs. And eventually there was a woman in the club, Eastside Comedy Club, that my friend's older brother owned. And she came over to me and said, hi, I'm Ed McMahon's daughter. And I said, you're not Ed McMahon's daughter. You're in the middle of Long Island. What are you doing? And well, my dad has me as a producer of Star Search. I'm here looking for talent. We'd like to book you on Star Search. I was like, are you kidding me? She gave me her card. The next day, Star Search called me, and I was on my way out to Los Angeles. And I won five episodes, and you got like $2,700 each time you won. I was richer than I had ever been. I ran out of material on the fifth or sixth episode. I called my comic friends at home and said, what jokes of yours can I use? And they told me what I could use, but I lost that <laughs> six week. And, um, and that was the beginning of my career. And as a result of doing Star Search, I got booked all over the country and I started touring when I was like 22. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'd love to pivot to when you were on your show, the Rosie O'Donnell show. Mm-hmm. And it ran for six years, six yeah. seasons. 
What do you remember most from from that experience and that time? The love, truthfully. The love of the cast and the crew. The love of all those producers that helped me do it. The love of the people I grew up watching and loving. You know, I mean, I remember Mary Tyler Moore came on the show and I went into her dressing room and introduced myself and showed her the notebook that I had kept since her show was on with trivia questions written in childish scrawl. And she was like, is this real? And I was like, it certainly is. So getting to meet As the if you people, would have made it up like the night before. I'm going to, I'm going to write in a book. I'm going to pretend right, to write I'm going to trick child. Mary Tyler Moore. Exactly. <laughs> All I wanted to do was get that Mary Richards. You know? But, um, you know, I loved doing it. I loved every minute of it. Now, there were things that became too much. It, it became too big too soon. It became an overwhelming thing to be shot out of a cannon into the stratosphere and then say, you know, you got to stay up there. I'm like, no, 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 I don't. I'm only doing this until my kid goes to kindergarten. Then I'm quitting. And then you're dubbed Queen of Nice. Uh, which was never accurate. <laughs> you know, I, I uh, it wasn't a horrible thing to be called, but I didn't think it was accurate. I don't think anyone who ever saw my stand-up in my heyday would think that I was nice. I went after Woody Allen and I went after, you know, sexism and I went after... You know, I cursed. I was, you know, I was definitely not the queen of nice in terms of my stand-up. Isn't it interesting how it was kind of like a negative? I mean, you know, that you you take something like that and in that context and in Hollywood, it's almost it's it is an insult in in many ways. Well, at the time, people were being killed on the Jenny Jones show. They had a right. a, a person who was was uh, you know, upset that the person had a crush on him and ended up right. murdering one of their former guests. You know, Geraldo was getting punched in the face every day. So according to the standards of daytime at the time with the exclusion of Oprah, I was the queen of nice. <laughs> Only because nobody was getting bloodied on my show, you know? Can you talk to me about your decision to leave the show? Yeah, when I took the show, the Rosie O'Donnell show, I told them that I only wanted to go until my son was in kindergarten. Well, I ended up going until he was in first grade. And when the show was a big hit in year two, they said, we want to extend your contract. I said, okay, I had signed a four-year deal. I said, I'll give you two more years. That was six years. Now, the whole staff knew this from the beginning. I told everyone, no, I'm going to leave after that year. And everybody was like, oh, you'll never leave. You're not going to walk away from that money. You would never do it. And I left and people were shocked. Howard Stern asked me a lot, don't you wish you just stayed on a few more years and got a few more hundred millions? And my, my point was this, if you ever have a hundred million dollars and you think you need more, <laughs> you have missed the meaning of life. <laughs> and so I had more money than a human should have. And I said, I'm done. I mean, that's a huge decision to make. And I know that we've talked about a lot of your pivotal experiences, but if you look back at your life, is there a moment where you thought, oh shit, now what do I do? You know- Hopefully um, it's not this podcast. No, no, honey, not at all. Uh, <laughs> I think that uh, after the Tom Selleck interview, where the first time I actually confronted someone about their political beliefs about um, guns, and he was the- head of the NRA spokesperson at that point. He was not the head. He was the spokesperson for the NRA. And uh, Columbine had just happened, and he was on a few weeks after that. And after I did that, and then the NRA started sending, you know, a lot of mail, not all of it happy. And uh, I thought at that point, what did I do? What did I step in? 
Was this when you were hosting your show? Yes. This was when you were hosting your yes. show, right? Okay. Yeah, Columbine was 99. Um, How did you move through it? You know, I moved through it by realizing that what I had to say was important and that women aren't just going to sit back and shut up as they're killing our children in schools. And as a mother, I was a young mother, I was very um, broken by Columbine. Oh, I mean, it was a devastating, it was just devastating in, in every way. But there was also a shift. And then for you personally, you go to The View. Yes. And you get to have opinions. Yes. What was that like? Wow. It was, you know what? I grew up playing sports. I'm a very big tomboy. I played baseball. I played basketball. I was on every team. I was the captain. You know, I was very into supporting other women, Title IX, pass the ball, you get the layup, you pass, you run. You know, it was teamwork. That's where I was going in. So I went in there with a teamwork attitude. But, you know, Elizabeth Hasselbeck was on there and, and Bill Getty was the producer of an all-woman's talk show with supposedly a woman's voice, was a man, an old cis white man, Republican, who uh, was against everything that I believed in and stood for. And he loved Elizabeth Hasselbeck and would go into her little dressing room and and give her notes and talking points of the Republican press that they would release daily. She had the talking points. And, you know, I was trying to get her to feel more than to fact. I'm like, but what do you feel about this, you know? And um, I, I tried. Here's what I did. When I took the job, I said to myself, I'm going to love her no matter what. I took her to her first Broadway show. I took her kids to see the Nickelodeon shows with me and my kids. I had her to my house with her husband. They swam in my pool. I thought we were friends in, in a civil kind of way. And then one day on the show, she kind of threw me under the bus and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? And I wa- finished the show, got my coat, walked out and said, I am not going back. And I didn't until a few years later when they asked me to come back and, and Whoopi was on it. And, you know, it, it, it we clashed in, in ways that I was shocked by. That takes balls, all of it, I have to say. Did, <laughs> do you think that they you were made to be the villain in all of that? In some ways I was, but it was all right. You know, I, I think I had produced my own show. I was the solo boss. And here I was not having any power to make decisions. There would be, you know, the the Rory Kennedy documentary about Abu Ghraib was out about the torture that we did as a country, how we sanctioned it. And Bill Getty wanted to do the new fall lipstick colors. And I'm like, we're not going to talk. And then, you know, Bill Cosby was a big topic. And I wanted to discuss Bill Cosby and Whoopi did not. Do you regret doing that show? No, I don't have any regrets in terms of like career and show business like that. I I feel like each thing I learned something, but I know this is not the best use of my talent to get in a show where I have to argue and defend, you know, basic principles of humanity and kindness. I don't know. It it, it was it, it was not something that I would ever do again, you know. And and when she died, Barbara and I, uh, you know, got along uh, after we we went out to dinner. We knew each other way before I did that show, before she asked me to do it. Um, and we remained, you know, friendly towards the end. And, um, you know, I I forgave her because she was older and she did the best that she could with, you know, what she had to work with. And, yeah. um, but it's nothing I'd want to do again. I could say that. Well, yes. <laughs> Something that strikes me about your career is that throughout it, there have been women who've lifted you up. Yes. In, in your comedy, in your shows. 
Well, and you know what's interesting? You know what's interesting too, Brooke, is that all of my movies were directed by women. Well, like I did League of Their Own was Penny. She picked me out of being a VJ and gave me that. And then Sleepless in Seattle was Nora Ephron. She not only helped my career, she got me an apartment in her apartment building, the Apthorpe. And I lived there for the whole time I had Parker as a baby and was doing my talk show. And there have been women who have taken me in and nurtured me in, in a way that I wish all women did with each other. I mean, there is something very, I'm sure your mom can see this and can see that that you didn't lose faith and that you weren't alone and that there were women that came to your to your rescue. Um, I'm just getting a note today. My producer, Julia, wants to know if you'd ever do a Now and Then sequel. I would love that. <laughs> I would love to do a Now and Then sequel. You know what's funny about the movie Now and Then? My character was gay. She was a lesbian. And in the film, I'm very close to Rita Wilson's character, and I'm a gynecologist, and I'm delivering her baby. And then I look up from catching the baby, and I say to her, I love you. You know, just friends, like, you know, not, not as a lover. And when they showed the film, the producer said, let's take out that she's gay. And they took every little tiny thing that I had done to build the character into an accurate gay woman and made her straight. God, did that just piss you off? Well, I was like, this can't be really happening. Is this really happening? But, you know, this was before Will and Grace. This was before Ellen was out. This was before, you know, and, and it was very controversial to be gay. And it was controversial. My agent didn't know if I should take the job because what if people find out that you're gay? And I was like, come on, I'm an actress. When did you come, did, when did you come out? After I, um, I had two foster children and one of them we had for many years and I tried to adopt her. And the state of Florida was not allowing gay parents, foster parents, to adopt the children that they raised. So I joined an ACLU lawsuit against the state of Florida and um, the Lofton Cruteau lawsuit, two men who were pediatric, um, who were AIDS nurses, and they would take the children of the dying people with AIDS and take the positive children and also the negative children, some of the children seroconverted, but they wouldn't allow them to adopt these children that they had nursed back from the brink of death. So I joined the lawsuit with them because I wanted there to be a cause to coming out more than, you know, hey, I'm gay. You know, I wanted there to be some something that would be done to help children in need as a result, you know, and this mm -hmm. lawsuit felt like God was saying, hey, you're up, kid. You're up, you know. Well, it's, it's using using what you have in a very positive way and making a difference for the right reasons and mm. so that it isn't, you know, you on a soapbox or you making it about you. You were making it about something bigger, which I'm so sure helped so many people. Yeah, it was, it was something that, you know, being gay was never hard for me. It was harder being a child. So when I sort of figured out that I was gay, I was 16, I was driving my car by myself for the first time, and I said out loud, I am a lesbian. I am a gay person. I am a gay person driving a car, and I am a lesbian. I, like, I just had to say it, and I didn't trust to say it in my house. I didn't trust to say it anywhere except alone in my car. And so that's, that was, you know, that I didn't have the trauma of, oh, your parents are going to find out. A lot of gay kids worry about their parents looking at them with disapproving eyes. I, I didn't have that, you know? And right. so it wasn't a, as big of a challenge as it is for most people, for me. 
That was the incredible Rosie O'Donnell. If you want to hear more from her, go listen to her podcast, Onward, which is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Now What with Brooke Shields is a production of iHeartRadio. Our lead producer and wonderful showrunner is Julia Weaver. Additional research and editing by Darby Masters and Abu Zafar. Our executive producer is Christina Everett. The show is mixed by Bahid Frazier. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.